These are days of tough times and ongoing uncertainties. But in Spring Branch, we're taking tangible steps to help our local businesses by telling neighbors about PPP loans, linking them to online courses, and help from our top leaders. Spring Branch is working for businesses. Yours. Find out more at sbmd.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate, the dirt, the deals, the people, the places. It's all here. I'm Nancy Sarnoff, real estate reporter with the Houston Chronicle, and I'm here today with Alan West. Hi, Alan. Hey, Nancy. So today on the show, we have a very special guest, a celebrity, really. I mean, a celebrity in our world of real estate and development in Houston. Today, we are about to be joined by someone who goes by a couple of different names. (laughs) Gus Allen is one, but that is really his pen name. In real life, he goes by Larry Albert. And I'd be surprised if anyone who listens to this podcast doesn't know who he is. Larry is the founder and creator of the wildly popular real estate news and gossip website, Swamplot, which, to the shock and sadness of so many Houstonians, including myself, recently stopped publishing new daily stories. Now, Alan, I don't know about you, but checking Swamplot every day for the past, you know, decade or more was a big part of my life. and yeah, every morning. Yeah, and uh, it's... It's uh, kind of crazy that it's not that I'm not doing that anymore. But Alan, now you bring an interesting take to this conversation, or you will, I think, because you used to work for Larry and you used to write some of those snarky swamp law posts. No snark. There no was snark. never any snark. No, right. But that, you're right. You're right. I yeah. yeah. Um, so let's get to it. Larry Albert, welcome to Looped In. Well, thank you very much for having me on the program. So, Larry, you and I go back a long way. I first met you long before you ever started Swamp Lot when you were hosting these cool happy hours, these these summertime happy hour events. Yes. Can you um, can you tell our <laughs> listeners what those were? Because I think someone should bring them back. Uh, well, that that is a trip down uh, memory lane. <laughs> uh, they were energy conservation happy hours. The idea came to me on a tour of um, a coal-fired energy plant uh, down in Sugarland, I believe, mm-hmm. where I learned that uh, peak energy usage uh, occurred late in the afternoon. And it just sort of hit me like a strange notion. I always presumed that noon was when the sun was highest in the sky, and so it should be the hottest, and so that's when energy usage should be highest. But actually, energy usage peaks in late afternoon, five o'clock, six or something like that, mm-hmm. when people get home from work and turn on or turn down their air conditioning at home. So I thought, well, gosh, if we can lower those peaks, that would be very helpful. And maybe one way to do it is to delay people from going straight home after work. So that was the at least conceptual idea behind the happy hours, which were not every day. <laughs> so they didn't, and we're not... Uh, <laughs> did not involve all of Houston, but they were, uh, that was at least the ideology behind it. And so we got together every once in a while, late in the afternoon after work with the uh, pretext of uh, saving energy, but really just uh, getting together and having some drinks and having some fun. Yeah, they were really fun. I, um, (laughs) so yesterday I was thinking about it and 
I have this Yahoo account that is <laughs> really old, and I still use it. Not ashamed to admit, but um, so I went and I I I don't delete a lot of things, and I went in there and I searched for energy energy savings happy hour or something like that, and I found some of your emails because I had always remembered that you on your you know you would send an email out once a week to your list of contacts and you always had like some cleverly written thing to say. And um, anyway, I, I found one from 2002 and <laughs> oh my. I know, and um, I won't read it, but because um, there's actually something else I want to read that you wrote, but it was just a, a really fun thing and someone should definitely bring that back. So you should. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if, it's you or Alan. Maybe you want to take take that over. Anybody who wants to save energy. Yeah, exactly. So, um, all right. Well, so let's fast forward to today. Can you first, just real quick, tell li- our listeners a little bit about yourself, just what, what your background is, what sure. you do? Um, sure. I, I'm an architect, and I also teach uh, at Rice Architecture, the, the, the School of Architecture at Rice. Um, and I, until very recently, ran Swamp Lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the those are the three main main things. There are a few <laughs> other things I do as well. But uh, my background, actually, before I became an architect, I was a journalist for a, a few years in another city in Boston. Mm-hmm. But that's those are the ingredients that that went into making Swamp Lot. On March seventh, you wrote a post on Swamp Lot saying. The daily publishing schedule is coming to a halt after 12 years, and I I really love what you wrote, and I want to read just a quick bit from it, if that's all right. Uh, Sure. Okay, it says, Houston has always been a funky town. It's rarely been served well by those who ignore that or who promote it with a chip on their shoulder or who build in it without recognizing the profound handicaps and weirdness that continue to shape it. In Swamplot's dozen years of documenting the odd details of its growth and destruction, we've noticed a gradual but steady change of attitude, one that we hope we've helped to affect. People here, we get a sense, now pay more obvious attention to the things that make Houston unique, bizarre, wacky, frustrating, and lovable. That is so true. Yeah. <laughs> that is so true. And it. so was that hard to write, that, that last post? Oh sure, sure, absolutely. Um, it's it wasn't as hard to write the post though as it was to uh, uh, say goodbye um, for for Swamplot. Uh, I put a lot of energy into Swamplot over the years, and all of us, you know, Alan included, we were all very uh, proud of what we did and excited to create a medium that a lot of people got a lot out of, but. The writing was on the wall for us for a little while, and we had to figure out when and how to uh, wrap things up. So doing it was tough, but uh, you know, I think I think uh, for people who appreciated Swamp Lot, and there are, seem to be quite a few of them because we got a, a great we got a great number of comments to that post. We got a lot of postings on social media. We received a lot of emails of people who were really thankful for what we had done, and. And that was great to hear because Swamplot was not something that we were just putting out and sending to people. It was a real participatory enterprise. And so mm-hmm. I hope that people 
reading that or thinking about Swamp Lot or listening to this podcast will think to themselves, you know, if, if Swamp Lot made a difference to you, what is it about it that attracted you? What is it that excited you? What is it that might have inspired you? And is there something you can do that might fill that void for yourself or for others or create something new that, that, that people can interact with and that can help to perhaps further some of the same goals of, of what our publication did? Well, we know that you started this, I guess, in 2007. What, right. what made you start this? And w- mm. I assume you were just a guy with a laptop at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I still am. <laughs> so it's no secret that Swamplot was greatly inspired by uh, another publication out of New York called Curbed.com, which is still around, although it's very different now from how it was when it started. I believe it started in 2004, and I came across it. It covered Houston, uh, sorry, it covered New York real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for several months, I found myself completely obsessed with this website, following it every chance I could. And I'm not really even interested in New York real estate. <laughs> so I thought that they had a real great way to engage people. And there was something, I mean, I had been reading blogs for a long time, but this was something that had a sort of immediacy and an extreme particularity covering just things on particular street corners or or activities or things that happened in a certain place. And it gave you a sense of excitement about that. I happen to have been somebody who spent a lot of time studying Houston Mm -hmm. um, as a graduate student at Rice in the architecture program. I my graduate thesis was about Houston, and I had sort of stewed and incubated with a lot of my own ideas about the place. But those were academic approaches, and maybe in the shower one day I put together those two things: my own sort of ideas about Houston, and then the idea of a long conversation with people about very particular places. Because I've always found that Houston, what what is what is unique about Houston plays out not just at the large-scale level where we have wide-ranging conversations like this or or people discuss, you know, what is the real ethos of Houston or things like that, but it actually plays out in very minute details. If you're walking down a sidewalk and you see a crack in that sidewalk and out of that crack is bursting forth some greenery, <laughs> this, you know, that that is the story of Houston and it's just in a crack in the sidewalk. Now, I don't know that we had many stories about cracks and sidewalks, but we certainly did try to cover at the local level things that could be extrapolated larger. I was just looking through, there was one post I think we did, I think that the title of it was something like uh, International uh, Fanfare Greets Opening of New uh, Gas Station by uh, (laughs) Hobby Airport. Um, And it it was actually, the the headline was not really exaggerating what happened, but, but... we tried with every story, and we didn't always succeed, but we tried to relate the individual thing that we were discussing and and bringing to people's attention to the central ideas of, of Houston without ever saying, this is a central idea of Houston. Instead, letting people uh, discuss and give us tips and talk about issues that when you add them up and when you read it over many years— and and as we did when we read the comments over many years, help to give a better picture of the place. 
Yeah, that's a a very unique thing and I think very difficult to do and and somehow you guys were able to I think nail it pretty much most of the time and and you also struck this balance between being sarcastic but not being mean. Was that <laughs> was that hard to do? <laughs> it, it, ultimately it wasn't. It was at first. And yeah. You know, I know that Swamp Lot got a reputation for being snarky, but really that reputation is only deserved when we started out very, very, in the very, very beginning, actually, for a lot of posts that were, that we put up before we were even live publishing. Um, but what we came to to realize is that there is a formula for, well, ultimately, the snarkiness came mostly from our, our readers mm-hmm. um, and our commenters. Right. And our job was not to... I mean, one can only take so much snark or deliver it. Um, but we did have a central thing that we were trying to do. Our editorial directive, our prime editorial directive was, I, it's two words. It's highlight absurdities. And that's what we did every day. We tried in every story to look at what are the things that are absurd about this thing that we are covering? And can we can we highlight those things and put them front and center? And fortunately... We're operating in Houston real estate, and <laughs> and Houston and the real estate, the world of the built environment in Houston is full of absurdities. You know the the cracks in the sidewalk with the plants coming through, and the internationally uh, recognized gas station as well. Um, they're all over the place. Yeah, and so we took a look at the whole journalistic process, which for conventional journalism has a lot of of rules and approaches and and ways that have been you know honed through the years of 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 putting forth different things and people do very well by that but our approach was different our approach was we only have we only want to take a little bit of your time and we want to queue up what is the most strike what are the most striking contrasts what are the most absurd things about things that you might see every day and by doing that it empower we tried to empower the readers to either comment or just think on their own or send us tips that are similar or that that go with that but also just to rethink the city mm-hmm. and to say well there is sort of a cent- central absurdity of of our living here uh this is a town founded by two real estate hucksters who didn't last very long in the city after they founded it um who declared that it was this great place where transportation modes would change that had the it was advertised to New York with engravings of beautiful mountainsides and hills <laughs> and uh it was it was correctly described as well watered but there's that central absurdity that has sort of yeah. undergirded all of Houston history and it's carried through you know it, it did become an international port because they made it so they got congress to you know, spend all that money to give us the ship channel. Um, but throughout our history, both in in stories big and small with the development of the manned space program here, um, which is certainly a big story, but small as well with the individual developments and and somebody creating a uh, fancy French chateau on a, on a busy street, um, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the suburbs, uh, all of those stories – each has their own little bit of quirkiness, 
And together, they help to remind us of the kind of place that we live in and to maybe look at it in a different way than it's typically presented or perceived. And so you mentioned the founders of Houston, and that, I think, takes us to a a question about the name Gus Allen, Mm -hmm. which most people probably get that inside joke by now, but... I didn't at first. You didn't at first? Yeah, I was actually telling Alan the other day, Larry, that I think the first time I got an email from you as Gus Allen (laughs) asking a question about something I had written, I was shocked. And I I just remember being, you know, Swamplot was pretty new and I was, I don't know, I was nervous about it. I just remember feeling kind of defensive, like, who is this person and <laughs> what are they doing? But um, so, um, so tell us about, tell us about Gus Allen and tell us uh, about the name Swamplot too, because I'd love to hear how that, how that name came to be. Was it just a, something you thought of quickly? Did you deliberate a long time? And were there other names that you were considering? Oh, the discards. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Gotta love the discards. Uh, I don't know if there were any good discards like all great (laughs) ideas. It was, it came to me in the shower, um, which was, you know, doubly appropriate because it was, you know, sort of wet and well watered. uh, (laughs) Well watered. And and I, I, I think the advantage is that it instantly declares a, uh, a a different approach to real estate. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not out here to try and sell you on some gorgeous new Tuscan, castle that's going to make you much more accepted among your friends. We're, we're more <laughs> interested in presenting Houston as it is. And I think it's hard not to avoid that when you have the name Swamplot. As far as uh, uh, the name Gus Allen goes, I had wanted to uh, start the website anonymously. And the main reason, I mean, certainly I, I did so because I wanted to separate my own professional life from what took place on the on the the website, but probably the bigger reason is that I didn't want Swamplot to come across as the musings of an opinionated person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I realized that there's nothing less anonymous than saying this is anonymous. So I had to have a somebody there, and so I had to pick a name, and I figured Gus Allen was just slightly different enough from. You know, the real name was Augustus Allen and John Kirby (laughs) Allen. I did occasionally receive emails from people saying, are you related to the Allens? Uh, (laughs) Questions like that. But uh, I figured if there was some name, people could say, well, who who runs Swamplot? And then someone would say, oh, well, that's Gus Allen. That would be, you know, a layer of protection (laughs) for uh, for a while. But it's, you know, it's been an open secret for, for, uh, you know, six years or so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the content and, again, kind of ask you to to go back and and try and remember some of the things that stood out to you. I, I thought about asking what, if you remembered what your very first post was, I'm sure the first post was sort of an introduction, but do, do you remember what came after the intro? <laughs> the second post? <laughs> the second post, yeah. yeah. Actually, there was no intro. Uh, part of what I liked about the idea of blogging was that it wasn't something that you had to create and perfect and and begin and end. It was just something that you did a little bit of each day. Um, and so that's a different approach from working on a project. It's just you get up in the morning and you 
go to the computer and you start wiggling your fingers. But the <laughs> one that I remember starting with was it was just a description of a townhouse uh, that was for sale. And for some reason, this townhouse, it was almost like a, a Frankenstein's monster. It, it had uh, each little part of it appeared to be taken from some different building type. Um, <laughs> and it was the kind of thing that you wouldn't pay much attention to. And it was really just a rendering of the townhouse. It wasn't the actual thing built. It was something people were trying to to sell. And I just was astounded by it. And I realized that if this had appeared in another publication or an advertisement, people would just sort of say, oh, I like that or I don't like that. But what I tried to do was go through and actually just describe each of those parts of the townhouse, pulling out how similar each one was to this other building type, not declaring it to be a Frankenstein monster. That's my shorthand now many years later. Mm -hmm. But uh, and I, th I think that was a good way to start because one of the things that we always tried to do was just plain describe things. I think it's very, very difficult to, build, to report on the built environment, to report on real estate in a way that doesn't buy into the the inbuilt orientations of the prime stakeholders. That's a fancy way of saying there are, there are a lot of people who want you to think certain things about real estate. Real estate agents have a certain approach to, to real estate. Developers have a certain approach to, to real estate. Preservationists have a certain approach to real estate. Architects have a certain approach to real estate. People who live nearby have a certain approach to their own real estate or the that of their neighbors. Um, they're all sorts of interest groups, each of which believes strongly or, or is taught to believe that the importance of it is the thing that they value highest. And one of the things we tried to do with Swamp Lot was to, to present things to all of those groups. We tried very hard not just to appeal to people who believe real estate is important or believe the built environment is important. We also wanted to appeal to appeal to people who thought, who you know, might be interested in the new pizza places opening up down the street, or wondering how come that cute little building on the corner was just torn down. Um, so, one of the things that I'm pretty proud of in what we created was that we had a place where all these people from different, not just backgrounds but different value systems, would come together and try to sometimes argue with each other about what was the most important thing. You would always have, in almost any of these conversations, maybe about a demolition, there would be the libertarian piping up and saying, well, who cares? This is somebody else's property. It doesn't matter to any of us. And then that person would be met by a more or less articulate person who might uh, describe a different view of it. So that's that plays a part in the whole idea of of just describing things as they are. So, you know, besides highlighting the absurdities, we also took a lot of joy in just describing things as we saw them. We want to know where the driveways are. Does it come up to the street? What are the basic facts about this development that people are going to notice or are going to have some impact on their lives? The other reason it's so difficult to talk about the built environment or that people have difficulty in describing it is that a lot of what affects us in our daily lives, and, and real estate affects us greatly, and I'm not just talking about, you know, gosh, I had to pay a lot of money for my home, or now I've got a big mortgage. I mean, where we go each day on a really fundamental level is determined by where the streets are and where they aren't, where the sidewalks are and where they aren't, where the buildings are and where they aren't. Uh, 
how people interact with each other. Just it's, it's at a very basic level. And yet, when it comes to describing the built environment, we often fall into these traps of, you know, describing a building as, you know, reminiscent of something else or falling too much in love with what the person who designed it or, or developed it had to say about it. Mm-hmm. When really, sometimes the, the interactions and the power of these things are just much more basic, whether it's there or not. <laughs> makes probably the most difference in a in a building or a, a, <laughs> a path of a freeway than any other attribute. So I just thought the idea of focusing on description, and you know, Alan can tell you that of among all the the editorial directives I charged him with was, you know, we we want to you know we want to know what this thing is like, and we want to have photos. So photos were really really important, and we were thrilled to receive lots and lots of photos from readers who wanted to send us stuff and wanted to show us what was going on. And so uh, not only did people send us tips in the form of photos, or if they just sent us a tip, of course, our first response was, can you please send us a photo? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because not only it it serves many purposes, number one, you always want a photo with a story. And number two, the photo helps to describe what's happening to our readers. And number three, it's a form of fact checking. Right. Um, So that's, that's always helpful. Yeah. Wow, it's it's very cool hearing you describe the approach because it makes me think about it in a different way. Like I said, there was that balance between criticism and observation, and I think maybe like a, a, a subtext to the site would be don't trust everything you see, you know, maybe in a way like I, I'm just yeah. I'm just rambling here, but like. <laughs> We're out in the world in Houston and we walk the streets and we drive the freeways and we look at our neighbors' houses. And I think by sort of pulling out examples of that, you you got people to sort of think twice about whether something was good or not or something that or, or maybe not good or not. But I don't know if you you know what I'm trying to say, but like this. Absolutely. This mo- so this morning I was walking around my neighborhood and because it was a beautiful day and I was just looking at these houses and a couple of them stood out to me because they had, and I'm, I'm not going to use the, the super technical architectural terms if there are even architectural terms for this, but, you know, some had like a hill country kind of theme on one side of the house and the other side of the house was a little Tudor and, um, <laughs> There was stone mixed with stucco, mixed with brick, mixed with this and that. And I feel like that's something that maybe I I learned from you guys from, like you said, kind of point, pointing out and just describing something that you see. And like the, you know, the or the the sidewalks that buckle and the the roots are growing out and, you know, so what? Or it's a sidewalk and you you step over it but then you think about you think about if you're in a wheelchair and you're trying to get through that street i think it's 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 really cool to hear you talk about your approach i i really appreciate it i think our our listeners are really going to love this so i've i've learned at the chronicle that a lot of the posts that we write in the business section some of them are people go nuts for and a lot of them they just sort of fall away one of the ones that people go nuts for is whenever we write about a grocery store. <laughs> and it could be the most boring post, like Kroger opens a new store 
Santa Fe. Nothing special. People click on it like like mad. It's it's mm-hmm. wild. What did you find people really engage with or w- what did people react to the most? Yeah, grocery stores were big. <laughs> right? <laughs> um yeah, yeah. Um it's it's kind of hard to explain that, but on the other hand, people interact with grocery stores a great deal mm. and there's so much to say about them everything from you know the, the the real estate or the you know what what place did this did this grocery store t- take you know what was there before but also you know is the fruit ripe mm-hmm. and can i get my favorite beer there and you know all these different different ways of looking at things and i think you know, we we always did try to highlight, or we 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 tried to privilege just simple reactions to things as much as we did the 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 quote unquote real estate uh, approach. Um, as far as what posts were popular, I did look recently uh, at the uh, our top let's say our top a hundred posts mm-hmm. for the over the over our lifespan, um, and it was interesting to see you know other than the sort of Here's how to get your house mucked out um, during Harvey, which of course is very popular. The the, the single most popular post was our uh, description and 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 sort of aggregated history of the uh, Kettle House in Galveston, which was surprising <laughs> to to me to see. But it, it was an architectural oddball. Yeah, um, had a great story to it. Um, but I think looking through a lot of those posts, what stood out. I don't think there was any one particular kind of thing that stood out, mm-hmm. but people are really hungry to read about things they have seen or that they live near. Right. And so, because there's not a whole lot of coverage of that, people are really hungry for that. They want they want to show up. You know, here's where maybe I can say a little bit about, you know, we, we got goosed a few times by people who would complain that we were just writing about the Heights and Montrose all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I share that criticism. Um, but a lot of what come, how it came about, it's not because we had some special interest in Montrose and the Heights. It's that when you write about a location in, in, in this internet age, you gather people around you who are interested in that location. And who are the people who are most interested in that location? Well, probably the people who live there. Mm-hmm. So now you have an audience of people who are ready to send you tips because they realize that you have elevated their neighborhood to the level of news and interest. Mm-hmm. So now you get tons more tips about those neighborhoods. And what do you do? Turn them down? I, I always wanted to send Alan or some other of our later editors. We had, you know, a series of four great editors. Um, I should just mention their names, John Lomax, Christine Gravodi, and Dan Singer, who succeeded Alan. Um, but we always wanted to send people out to some far-flung place maybe to camp out for a week or two and just write obsessively about that little suburban neighborhood. It didn't really happen because we had too many other things on our plate, but I kind of wondered if we did that, would we suddenly, you know, get a giant willow brick con- contingent, you know, <laughs> oh yeah, weighing in about, you know, you know, who was in and who was out on the, in the shopping centers and the malls in that neighborhood or, or, you know, some of the local issues. I think that's true. I think a lot of local journalism works that way, but I think, I would say I would say this for other folks. You know, if you're thinking in your mind, if you're if you looked at Swamplot the way maybe the way that that I looked at Curbed, um, 
uh, you might say, hey, well, yeah, maybe there is a way of bringing a lot of people in to discuss things. And maybe if we went to some underserved, in the journalistic sense, communities, mm-hmm. uh, we would we would get a lot of, you know, we would get a lot of attention and people would really value us. Some of the posts that I don't think they quite made the top 100, but when we spoke about some some neighborhoods that maybe had some, you know, a few, uh, a toxic history, shall we say, um, we would get just over the years, people writing in say, oh, I grew up in this neighborhood and we had health problems, et cetera, et cetera. Every once in a while, we would hit sort of an un- what I would call an underserved community in that way, th- where people were just happy to find something that was about them and they and they wanted to participate and contribute. Um, so I think I think our our coverage was certainly guided by the tips we received. Mm-hmm. Although, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of that had to do with our directing of that. Right, Alan. Do you remember a post that stood out to you that? got a lot of traction or that you really loved <laughs> or was proud of? Oh, jeez. Yeah, I mean, often Astrodome posts would do really well. Yeah. And one that I'm remembering was, <laughs> Larry mentioned the Manned Spacecraft Center earlier, but so the West Mansion down in Clear Lake, yeah. right? There was a time when Akeem Olajuwon yeah. had tried to turn that into a high-end men's big boutique, and tall yeah. boutique. Yeah. And so that, <laughs> you know, speaking of absurdity, I, I think that sort of captures a lot of the, you know, what Larry would call the weirdnesses of of the region. You know, this, right. this high-end boutique for ex-NBA players in the suburbs. Right, right. Where NASA astronauts used to train. <laughs> I mean, it's just a very... <laughs> There's just so many connotations and implications yeah. there that are just sort of moon rocks. They, I think that's where the moon rocks were sold, were were stored for many years. That same building, okay, oh, wow. which was owned by Rice. And so there's just all these these tangled histories. That, yeah, that, that's a, that's a that one sticks out. And then there are, of course, all of the regular features that you would do, like the daily demolition report and the listing photo of the mm-hmm. week, which were. Really fun. I loved them. I, I would send you guys listing photos because I'm looking at them all the time. But I found one the other day, and it was after you guys had um, stopped publishing. And it was like, yes, yeah, it was some crazy house with, and of course, the, it had like multiple pictures of weirdnesses. <laughs> but the one I remember was this, the stripper pole the in the bedroom. The stripper pole was iconic. <laughs> yeah, I should say that. The, the point of that feature, I mean, clearly, you know, when we found a, a photo that that had that kind of humor in it, it was great to do. But the, the, the basic original idea behind the listing photo of the day was actually just to sort of, you know, imagine here among the listing photos when there's, you know, thousands and thousands of these things, which ones could you pull out and and sort of look at as if it might appear in a museum? And mm-hmm. so some of them were just sort of abstract Mm-hmm. And others were just something like, well, I'm just going to appreciate this as as a photo, independent of uh, of of what it is. So those were certainly popular. But actually, you know, among our, the the category of daily demolition reports was among one of our top uh, visited pages. Uh, so people really appreciated that. They appreciated the headline roundup posts that we did, uh, in which we you know we still tried to you know within the context of just a headline pull out the absurdities in, in, in things that took place there. But also among our favorites, um, there was one about uh, right after Harvey where the post Oak school 
turned it its a uh, gym into a a classroom, but actually one that had about eight or ten different classes going on at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, which was pretty amazing. Uh, another headline: Houston is about to be surrounded by a gentle mist of mosquito spray. <laughs> it's maybe a regular event, but not one that's typically presented that way. And some of our posts also were, we say aggregated, but they were they were taken from reporting elsewhere, which we always credited. Mm-hmm. But we tried to represent in a way that better fit in our format, mm-hmm. that allowed people to get to the gist of it much more quickly, or maybe pulled out a detail that uh, among a more, you know, expansive piece that we thought was important. And, you know, one of those is here, I, I believe this was from Actually, this is a Dallas Morning News story, how, and, and I know the Chronicle had some coverage about this as well. Certainly, a lot of people did. You know, how it came to pass that hundreds of families purchased homes inside Houston's reservoirs. Mm-hmm. Um, another one, for its next trick, Bank of America Center will completely digest the secret building it swallowed 35 <laughs> years ago. That was an astounding story, and, and it could be presented merely as, it, which it often was, is, well, the, the Bank of America Center is just going to expand its square footage internally. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that the building was built around and encased uh, another building, uh, a Western Union building inside of it, um, because of the circumstances when it was built. And so this, I just find that a, a bizarre thing. It's almost like this pregnant building has got this little baby inside, and <laughs> eventually, or or maybe maybe it's the other way around, as like a dead, maybe it was like a dead building inside it, and eventually <laughs> the, the 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 usefulness of that structure. Uh, had passed, and so they decided to to open it up and turn it into something else. But but pulling, I think, what we did with that headline, and you know, is pulling out what makes it what makes it strange. And so mm-hmm. you could imagine that story being presented another way, and maybe it wouldn't be so interested mm-hmm. interesting. And and I think in pull in doing that, I think you help readers to you know, as as you described, appreciate the things around them in maybe a different way and just start to think about them differently and maybe to see how they might connect into, into a larger sense of, you know, what Houston is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and relate to those things. Mm-hmm. And feel as though they have a, some sort of stake in participating. Right. Yeah. So like you said, you had a lot of readers that contributed tips and story ideas and you said you, you had a, a fact-checking process, some of which included getting photos. But I have to ask, what was the biggest thing you got wrong? Mm. <laughs> Hello? I'm going to have to think about it. <laughs> I, I should say first that we, well, I know what it was. And I, out of respect to the people who uh, were very nice to us and corrected us about it, I, I'm, I'm not going to describe it in detail, but we, we tried very hard, not only before the store, before writing, um, but also after writing to make sure that we weren't inaccurate. Um, mm-hmm. and I think you can see that sort of in our comments as well. Um, if somebody corrected us on something and we were able to figure that out, we, our first response was not to get in the comments and argue with a reader that our interpretation was correct and <laughs> something like that, which I've, have seen in other publications. Um, instead, it was thanks, thanks for helping us correct this because we really want to be correct and we want to be accurate. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I remember Alan telling me that what took him the most time in writing a story often was not writing the story or researching it, 
but figuring out how not to say something wrong or stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, it's no, it's no comment on Alan. It's that's just how it was. There's so much to talk about and you want to make sure that you're as, as, as accurate as, as possible. And we benefited from a structure. We didn't, you know, we didn't have editors, other editors lording over us saying, well, you must describe this and you must say that if there was something we didn't understand or didn't know, we would leave it out. Um, and oftentimes we, it was a very participatory process because mm-hmm. people would write in or comment in and let us know when we, when, when we did something off. But there were some, you know, I should say that our, I'm pretty proud of how, how well we did on a lot of the stories, um, both with the corrections. I mean, silly things as far as like describing something to the right of something as when it was really to the left or east or west. Occasionally we get that thing wrong and a commenter would, would, <laughs> would point it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that's great. I mean, we, and it, it's a blog and we have the luxury of doing that. Yeah. It's not like we have to recall all the newsprint. But our coverage of the the Hans Bierhaus 2520 Robin Hood feud, for example, I, I, I know for a fact that lawyers were scrutinizing our coverage we wrote about 14 posts about it for anything <laughs> that mm-hmm. they could legally attack. And they didn't find a thing that, that they could because we really stuck really hard to facts. We, uh, we might present those facts in an unusual way. We might highlight certain things more than others. But the whole goal was to present the facts so that the conclusions weren't things that we were telling the reader. Mm-hmm. The conclusions were, and I think should be, things that the reader decides for him or herself. Mm-hmm. And does so from you know his own his own uh, orientation and background, but also by reading the comments and reacting to those, and maybe over time being convinced and seeing things differently from the way he might have previously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you obviously put so much thought into it, mm-hmm. and and worked really hard over the years to just make it so consistent. I mean. I don't think anyone would ever could ever tell that there were different writers or or editors behind it. Well, great. I think that's. I mean, one thing I don't want people to get the impression of is that this was some sort of special thing that only I could have done. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really think it's something that a lot of people. I mean, not that anybody is going to want to imitate exactly what we put together in Swamp Lot, but it is possible through an editorial process mm-hmm. to create something different mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to do so in a way that other people can do it. I mean, I, I trained Alan in this thing. Alan was a brilliant writer to begin with, but, and, and, and could do great things in other, in other formats. We had a particular format. So training Alan to meet this particular format and how to make the most out of it was something that was great for, was great for me because I learned how to, how to, transfer this. And then we we did it with other writers as well. Um, and not that I'm saying that our kind of writing is, you know, the only kind of writing that's it. It's a very strange format. It's, it's, it's short form. It's not long yeah. form. Although, you know, we occasionally we would have writers who we would try to hire and sometimes they would say, well, I'm more interested in long form journalism. And after a while, I came to think that, you know, I could argue that our journalism is a bit something like long form. We haven't, we're having a long term, long ranging discussion with our readers about the city. And we're not just sort of picking something up. I mean, sure. I'm sure there are many readers who only read one or two Swamp Lot stories, mm-hmm. but I'm hoping, and I, I believe from our stats and uh, analytics that we, we attracted people and they came to read Swamp Lot regularly, see it as a long standing conversation 
and one in which they were not being preached to, uh, they were not being told what to think, but that they were allowed to participate in that process of coming to their own conclusions and being aware of what's around them, having no punches pulled as far as, far as you know, pointing out what are the things that stand out um, for their absurdity or peculiarity or general funkiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it tells the story of Houston. There's a, there are multiple story arcs if you take it <laughs> as a whole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when there was the housing downturn, mm-hmm. downturn, you covered foreclosures when, in in your way of doing it. Uh, during Harvey, you mm-hmm. you were able to do that, and so it it didn't really. I mean, I'm sure there, like you said, there are critics that that think it it didn't cover certain parts of town, but. You didn't seem to really ignore anything that that really was important. And I think, Alan, you told me that there was definitely a, a process that you kind of had to learn going into it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Larry and I worked together for about a week, would you say, Larry? Um, sorry, basically side by side at like the a House Swamp in the Lot Heights. boot camp. It was a Swamp Lot boot camp. Yeah, and Larry yeah. brought out a ruler and would wrap my knuckles when I, <laughs> when I used a semicolon incorrectly and— <laughs> it, did, it did make me a different writer, and I think a better writer ultimately. Yeah. But it was, yeah, it was sort of interesting. You know, as Larry told me once that <laughs> a reader said that there was no discernible distinction when I started mm-hmm. doing more of the post than Larry had, and that uh-huh. that was sort of this this high praise. Yeah, <laughs> that like, I was able to sort of imitate right. the style and throw my voice, as it were, and, like take the training wheels off and, right, and right. go. And Larry was clapping in the background. <laughs> Look at him! Look at him go! Look at him go! <laughs> well, Larry, I, I'm going to let you go. This has been a long conversation, but I wanted to ask. You said before you closed, the the writing was on the wall. What did you mean by that? And why why did you ultimately decide to to stop publishing regularly? It was the people involved, and it was obviously more than just me. We were ready to move on to different things. Um, mm-hmm. And as I think, I I've said in other venues, Swamp Lot was a uh, a side project that kind of got out of hand, mm-hmm. and so <laughs> I I think I think that uh, twelve years is a long time. Mm-hmm. And Alan knows, having been the primary editor for this, that even even a a year or two writing three to six posts a day, it can burn you out. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, and so I think that. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the simplest explanation that we were ready to move on to other things. Uh, I've explored and are exploring other, uh, things that can be done both in this venue and others. Uh, mm-hmm. but that, that, uh, it was, it, it was time to move on. Yeah. And so all the good stuff that's, that's there on the server and on the website and, uh, out there, what, um, you're you're exploring ideas of of what to do with all the all the good stuff that tells Houston's story over the past twelve years. Yes, we are. Yeah. All right. Well, you'll have to come back on when you decide what that is. Thank you. And um, yeah, thank you, thank you so so much for for doing this. It was really a I, I think a great talk. And since you mentioned this thing when we started, all I've really been able to think about is <laughs> the other day I was outside in front of my house and looked up and there was a little tiny tree growing up from the roof shingles. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I, I did you take a picture? 
No, no, but Pixar, Pixar I, didn't happen. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's still there, and I am going to go look at it in a completely different way. And yeah, I'm going to take a picture. Yeah, tips at swamplot.com. <laughs> All right. Well, well, thanks again, and we will definitely stay in touch with you. And thank you too, Alan. This has been that's yeah, fun always. Yeah, this yeah. has been really fun. And listeners, please subscribe to Looped In on Apple Podcasts or any podcast app. Tell a friend about us. And if you like the show and want us to continue doing it, rate us on your podcast app and write a review. And if you have a new idea for a show or you just want to say hi, you can reach out on Facebook at Sarnoff and Alan is at Alan West. Until next time, thanks for listening. 